Lauren Watkins is a professional climate change communicator. My mom and I, we butt heads a lot. She's trying to get her mom and the rest of us to understand what's happening, why it's happening, and what we can do about it. Welcome to the ADAPT podcast. I'm Brandon Rivers, a reporter at WJCT News in Jacksonville, Florida. ADAPT is our online magazine about what people in Northeast Florida are doing to adapt to sea level rise and climate change. In this podcast, we're hearing from some of them about what they've learned and what motivates them as our region grapples with big issues. Lauren Watkins describes herself as an environmental psychologist. She teaches different groups how to communicate about environmental issues through workshops. I'm getting better. There we go. All right, I'm calling you in one minute early, if that's okay. (laughs) As a reporter who covers the environment and climate change almost exclusively, workshops like this fascinate me. Ready to go? All right, let's keep rolling then. One of the things that's a pet peeve for me is to go to a zoo, and it's like, here's the dying. Here are the otters. Here's where they live. Here's what they eat. Here's why they're dying. And it's just uh, this like obituary, pre-obituary for every species in there. And that can leave you not feeling hopeful. And one of the most important things we need to hold on to as interpreters is inspiring hope for saving the resources you're interpreting. Yeah. So they want a little bit of fright, but not existential fear. There's a difference between the doom and gloom and the scary. So Lauren's teaching this group about the best ways to communicate through signs at places like museums and zoos. But she also leads workshops where she teaches people how to talk about climate change. When she first told me about this, it got me wondering, how do you get a job like this? Lauren says her first job ever was selling cell phones back in the early 2000s. Which was awful, but I learned a lot about human behavior (laughs) during that time. (laughs) While she was peddling Nokias and Motorola flip phones, she was also studying psychology at Flagler College. I thought that I wanted to specialize in um, like therapy sessions one-on-one. Realized pretty quick that wasn't my gig. But she was passionate about the environment. So she got a master's degree in natural resource management and environmental science. And finally, a Ph.D. in environmental psychology. It involves understanding how people interact with the natural world, how they become psychologically connected or disconnected from it, and um, what kind of behaviors they have and how they um, influence the environment. So I work a lot day-to-day on research and then um, imagery, words, different kind of communication strategies for environmental projects. The nonprofit she works for, called Impact by Design, works with organizations to find out how they want people to change behavior when it comes to their causes and teaches them how to make that happen. These climate change workshops are part of that, too. They're possible because of a partnership with the National Network for Ocean and Climate Change Interpretation, or NOKI. Lauren was recently elected the organization's executive chair. Okay, so let's let's dig into these strategies. What's the most effective way to start a conversation and get your audience engaged? Well, typically, if you're going to have a conversation about climate change, the best way you can start off with, with is going with a value, putting a value at the beginning and top of that conversation. And by value, I mean things that people, um, their ideas that people generally hold, things they care about, things that can be really hard to shift, like caring about your family or security and safety. Those are values that are universal. We call that in the field of environmental interpretation, a universal concept that as a human on this planet, you can relate to. So you want to start off with something like that, um, as opposed to things that maybe we just care about or one person might care about. So not projecting our values on the others when we talk about climate change. 
is one way to keep from getting the door slammed in your face or uh, the cranberry sauce tossed in your face, whatever it might be <laughs> if it's a Thanksgiving table. Uh, so trying to make people realize that we have something in common. And, for example, one of these values that the National Network for Ocean and Climate Change Interpretation tested were values of protection and responsible management. Um, what that looks like is saying something like um, it's just the right thing to do to care about each other, the people and places that matter to us in our lives, regardless of whether it's a, a partisan issue or human caused or not. We just want to protect the people and places we care about from harm. Okay, and are there some some common values that people tend to use that are proven to be ineffective? Yeah, there are some really interesting ones that, that we tried out over the years. Um, one is we call it the cute critter trap. So seeing the polar bear hanging onto that last ice cube in the yeah. middle of the ocean is very triggering, but it's not necessarily productive. Um, even though it might be hard to imagine, not everybody cares about polar bears in the Arctic, especially these these are places and species we may have never seen. So it's mm-hmm. you have your, your family versus a polar bear. People tend to value something a little bit more universal like that. So not appealing to just images of cute animals or beautiful places, because also not everybody has the luxury to visit a zoo or a park or have leisure time to go on vacation to these places. Another one that backfires that we found is using this um, concept of um, science says so. The science shows us this, and we know this because of science. Particularly today, that can be triggering and partisan for people. Um, and there's a lot of public discourse around which science we can trust and what does it mean to be a scientist and whose science is valued over others. And so steering away from that, um, as an environmental educator in the past, I leaned on that a lot. You know, we know this from this article. And that can come across as kind of elitist and shut mm-hmm. people down that might feel a little bit in Maybe they don't know a lot about science. Are there other traps that should pe- people should watch out in these conversations about climate change? Well, there's so many traps you can <laughs> fall into. But, yeah, a couple of the, um, that I've seen in the past that we've researched are focusing on uh, we should take action for climate change because of the economic benefit that we'll get from that. That's another thing that not everybody cares so much about, especially if you're just trying to make it day to day. Or um, thinking about the consumerism side. Of we need to take care of the climate, so there's plenty of fish for everybody to eat. Mitigating the problems, not from a consumer, consumerism or economic standpoint, but trying to mitigate these problems because they are just the right thing to do to responsibly manage our natural resources is more important and more effective with most Americans. Okay. All right, so let's say we've established that shared value and our audience understands why climate change matters. What's what's the next step? An explanation that helps people understand what's happening so if you, if you just include, like, there's this problem and here's why we should care about it, if you don't follow up with why what's happening is happening and what we can do about it, it can make people feel hopeless or really stressed out. We get inundated with environmental problems um, every day, hearing about them from multiple sources. So you want to think about an explanatory metaphor, which is what we call them in our strategic framing workshops, that helps people understand the mechanism that's at play. So... Uh, For example, using an analogy that helps people understand the role that carbon dioxide plays in the environment. And what that might look like is uh, a sentence like, if we burn fossil fuels uh, for energy, that we add more and more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. And the atmosphere um, is kind of like a blanket around our Earth. And the more CO2 that we add to that blanket, the thicker it gets and the hotter it can get because now we're wrapped in this heat-trapping blanket. And so um, that analogy helps people understand that the atmosphere has a role to play, 
that CO2 can't escape the atmosphere because it's like a blanket around the earth. And the thicker that blanket gets, the hotter things can be for people. Another one that has to do with rampant versus regular CO2. And so uh, I like this one because it frames the conversation that regular carbon dioxide is a very normal part of our environment. We say that argument a lot from people that lean a little bit more uh, towards denying that climate change is actually a problem, that it's just a natural process. And it is a natural process. But uh, what we also know is that rampant carbon dioxide, so all this excess carbon dioxide, is not natural. And regardless of um, what side of the political fence you sit on, we can agree that regular CO2 is a natural and healthy part of our world. But rampant carbon dioxide we see as occurring. We know that that's happening. And that uh, by burning fossil fuels for energy, we're adding to this rampant carbon dioxide issue and that that is having some implications for our climate. And uh, because we all agree, hopefully, that protecting the people and places we love or responsibly managing our natural resources for future generations is the right thing to do, we can kind of skip past that mechanism of um, who's at fault and moving towards some productive dialogue about solutions. Lauren says analogies and metaphors are useful because they can shorten a big, long, technical, scientific explanation into something relatable and easy to remember. But, she says, the greenhouse gas metaphor for carbon emissions, probably the most popular metaphor in the climate change space, isn't actually very effective. That's because a lot of people don't actually know how greenhouses work. And the metaphor doesn't really highlight the problem because greenhouses are good for growing plants. Greenhouses are seen as this fun, pretty place to go into for people who might enjoy working in a greenhouse, but they don't quite capture the scale of the problem and they they give this impression that it's a good thing, um, which global warming can do too. We've even seen quotes from political leaders that, you know, wish there'd be more global warming in this certain area. Where's that at during major snowstorms? And so it's just misleading for the general public to um, try to – that's not a mechanism that accurately matches the scientific process at hand. Um, So are there other things people should avoid at this point in the conversation? Yeah, there's actually um, a couple different recommendations we have. So if you're you're starting off with that value, you've gotten your way in the door. Now you've talked about the metaphor and how it works. After that, you want to think about um, maybe the impact that it's having on something they care about and then a solution. As you're talking about the impacts and solutions, there's um, some words that we recommend using in conversation over others. So instead of saying something like the word politician, talk about elected officials. Or instead of saying the word policy, just talk about um, legislation or initiatives that people can get behind. Why is it that uh, some of these words (laughs) or phrases have the potential to shut this conversation down? Well, I'll use an anecdotal example. Before we started recommending people use protection and responsible management as the leading values, there's also two others, innovation and ingenuity. One that we did test was stewardship. And what we did not anticipate is that stewardship had a religious trigger for some people. And we want to try to use terms that everyone can relate to. Sometimes inadvertently we can trigger religious thinking or political thinking that can cause people to disengage from that conversation. So I'm pretty sure I heard this in a TED Talk from Catherine Hayhoe, who I'm sure you're pretty familiar with, very well-known climate communicator. Uh, she's a climate scientist, and she's also very religious. She's ma- married to a pastor, I believe. Um, and one of her big things is trying to, to reach the religious community with these messages. As a Christian, I believe that God created this incredible planet that we live on and gave us 
responsibility over every living thing on it. She specifically uses these kind of stewardship messages, but that seems to kind of run counter to what you're saying. These terminologies, these values are tested at public institutions where you don't know necessarily who you've got in the room. So I wouldn't recommend someone working at Mosh or Jacksonville Zoo and Gardens using that term stewardship because you don't know your audience that in depth. Mm -hmm. But if you're working, uh, let's say you're doing a presentation for um, a religious organization, and I grew up Southern Baptist, so I, I have to dig deep to remember my Bible verse days, but the one that you're referring to is about, I believe, God giving Adam and Eve domain and dominion over the Garden of Eden and the earth, of course, to take care of it and be stewards of it. And that word is used in modern versions and um, interpretations of the Bible, stewardship is. But when we've tested that word out with high school students, they had no clue what that word was. And mm. they also didn't know what the word resilience or sustainability meant exactly mm. from the context that we understand it in environmental science. So it just depends on knowing your audience well enough to be ready to use those values. With climate change, pretty much everything about it has become politicized. So how can we just avoid saying, like, phrases that could cause this problem? It takes some practice. I have found that over the years I feel a lot more comfortable and fluent just from practicing. I'm talking to people on a plane or talking to people on the radio or (laughs) or wherever that might be, but practicing those conversations and not expecting that it's going to go perfectly. Uh, even even I, I'll say that my mom and I, we butt heads a lot. And one of those areas we butt heads in is um, our politics and our beliefs about climate change. And I'm still trying to work on her, but it's it's still difficult to have those conversations, uh, particularly when you're, uh, you feel like you're up against um, an opposing ideology. So I know I've, I'm not trying to drill this point too much, but starting out with a value that you both, you know you're going to agree on. So safety, security, loving your family, protecting those things that you care about. That's one way to keep your eye on that prize and try to stay away from things that you're just personally passionate about because you can think about the last time someone argued with you, it probably didn't go over so well. So (laughs) just trying to maintain that tone of we're in it together. It's not about your politics or mine or your religion or mine. Let's just move on from that. You're listening to the ADAPT Podcast. To see photos of all the people you're hearing from, along with written Q&As, visit adaptflorida.org. And while you're there, check out the interactive tool to see your property's risk of flooding from projected sea level rise, watch videos about local community efforts, and read about how climate change is affecting us today. That's all at adaptflorida.org. The ADAPT podcast is a production of WJCT Public Media. Financial support for ADAPT comes from our readers and listeners, with additional support from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations and the 2040 Foundation. More at adaptflorida.org. Now, back to Lauren Watkins. All right, so let's step back again and go back to the, the solutions part of this conversation. Why is it so important to include solutions when you're having these conversations about climate change. 
You don't want to leave people feeling completely hopeless, like there's nothing that they can do. And the fastest and easiest way to make someone feel like that is to tell them how bad something is and then say, okay, see you later. Hope you care about this. (laughs) Because caring about it and being aware of the problem is not going to change people's behavior. We know through years of environmental psychology that information and awareness raising rarely are the the thing that changes someone's actions. So if you can give them a solution as part of that story, then that's a really great way to make them feel like there's something they can do and to build that person's mental model of what them being involved in the solution looks like in their mind. Or even out in public, if they can see people taking action in front of others. And then it also helps them um, understand that there is hope. The term climate crisis has become extremely popular since The Guardian announced it would be changing some of the language it uses in its own climate change reporting. Do you think that term is problematic? I don't think it's inaccurate, but I think it can be problematic for the general public in the sense that we, what is a crisis to someone? I mean, my crisis might be that I don't have enough money to pay my bills this month or that I'm just trying to get by day to day working two or three jobs. And so if you have two crises you know, up against each other, people are going to lean towards the personal one. So I'm okay with it as long as we're talking about the solutions too. Uh, So what kind of solutions do you recommend people talk about? This is uh, something that I'm very passionate about is that when we're talking about solutions to any environmental problem, but especially climate change, it has to match the scale of the problem. Individual actions like switching to LED light bulbs or buying a Prius, those are great. And of course, as those build up over time, they can help Um, address some of the issues that we see with climate change. But individual actions that we often see people promoting as a way to solve climate change, a lot of the time they don't even have anything to do with climate change at all. Like don't use plastic straws is really not connected to climate change. That would not be a direct line from A to B there or recycling better or more. That's not going to solve the climate problem. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do those things. Hmm. Those individual actions are really important. But if people are doing these individual actions at home on their own and there's not opportunity for other people to see them happening or be engaged at large scales, they're not going to solve the climate crisis, as The Guardian puts it, because to solve a crisis, it takes a lot more momentum than people changing a light bulb in their house. So that's one thing. The other thing, too, is that they need to match the scale of the problem in the sense that this is a social issue. And when we talk about social issues, we might be talking about civil rights issues, LGBTQ issues, women's rights, um, all of these things that that are civic level problems. Climate change is also a civic level problem. And that's because the most marginalized of us in society are the people that are going to pay the most for what's happening with climate change. This is a social issue. And the solutions that we talk about need to be civic and social solutions, not individual ones at home. You, I've gotten in conversations leading these workshops with people that come because they are a climate denier and they're really excited to have that platform in front of a bunch of people who aren't and make waves and stir things up. And that's been interesting. That's happened to me before. Actually, uh, in Ponte Vedra at the GTM Research Reserve, we led a workshop once and we had it open to the public and there was someone there who um, vehemently denied climate change. He also owned a home right on the ocean there in Ponte Vedra and wanted a chance and he felt like it was a platform he wanted to have his voice heard to deny sea level rise, and this is before several of the hurricanes that we had that did some major damage in the Volano de Ponte Vedra area. Yeah. I don't be interested to talk to him today. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was it was a really scary moment for myself and the other facilitators because he was angry and worked up, 
and we didn't want it to hijack the flow of the workshop. But we gave him an opportunity to say what he had to say and use some facilitation techniques to pivot back to using his feelings as an opportunity for us to explore, well, what could we talk about that would make you feel more comfortable as a solution, given that we know that the climate's changing, regardless of why. It was scary. Not necessarily as scary as the conversations with my mom sometimes, but it's still scary. So to keep this conversation productive, it seems extremely important to listen no matter what is said and to to maintain an open-mindedness. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think that the more you do that, too, the better you are prepared for the next conversation and the one after that because you're gaining so many multiple viewpoints. And instead of seeing that as someone challenging your character or your background or your scientific knowledge, see it as this person feels comfortable enough with me to argue with me, so I'm going to take that as a compliment, which can be hard to do. And and just f- use what I know to be true, that we both care about the same thing and rampant CO2 is not good for our environment and it's going to hurt all the things we care about. So let's figure out something we can do about it. Um, and, and it might sound easier than it really is, but coming from someone who has family that deeply oppose climate science, it can be done and <laughs> it can happen where you can get to neutral neutral ground and think about solutions. Any other tips, any more advice you, you would give to people that we haven't touched on yet? One that I I learned is emotionally very freeing is that you don't need to be a climate science expert to have conversations about climate science. When we survey people, um, even just people on the sidewalk, how do you feel about talking about it? A lot of people express that they're really scared because they don't know a lot about climate science. And that is totally fine that you can still have these conversations without having what you feel needs to be an arsenal of scientific facts to splurt out at people. Because what we do know uh, is that people tend to not want to hear a bunch of facts. People don't remember scientific facts. I mean, think about high school science. There's so little probably that we recall from that. And so don't feel that pressure to um, know so much about how climate science happens and ocean acidification and what's the right pH level for the ocean and all these things. You don't need that arsenal. If you know that there's a value you guys have in common and that you know how to recommend a civic or community level solution, those are the most important parts of that conversational sandwich. And what happens in the middle is maybe a little less important um, as long as we can get to commonality and solutions and positive, hopeful conversations. That was Lauren Watkins, the Director of Behavior Change Strategies at Impact by Design. To learn more about what she does and to see photos of her in action, go to adaptflorida.org. There you can get to know all six of the people profiled in this podcast. Thanks for listening to the ADAPT podcast. I'm Brendan Rivers. Production help came from Lindsay Kilbride with editing by Jessica Palumbo. The theme music was composed and performed by Davin Llewellyn and Keith Phelps from The Conglomerate. The ADAPT podcast is a production of WJCT Public Media. Financial support for ADAPT comes from our readers and listeners with additional support from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations and the 2040 Foundation. More at adaptflorida.org.